we're in chapter 18, and again, kind of where we're at in the book. We're moving towards the end of the book, and so we're getting, we're getting to look at almost what I call the, the domino effect that will take place as the world comes to an end. You know, you push one domino and it goes boop, 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 and all these things fall. Well, chapter 17 is kind of that first domino, and what, what John is being able to see is that as we get to the very end, in that last period of time, the agencies that give people some sense of stability and some sense of, um, you know, the world is right and some sense of order, those agencies begin to, to be collapsed and collapsed quickly. Um, this section of the Revelation should have us thinking about what we're watching on television intensely right now. Uh, all of America is just caught up in, you know, looking at, will it be Trump? And now Trump is doing this, and now Rubio is doing that, and Ted Cruz is doing this, and Clint is doing that, and the burn is doing that. So we're all wrapped up in that. And, um, you know, it'll lead to two people that have a, have a, you know, a runoff against each other and someone becomes a new president. And somehow we feel like, okay, that's what gives us stability. We've got somebody in place. We've got these agencies at work for us. And what the Bible teaches us is that just like that, just like that, just look at history. These political agencies that seem to be so in control unravel and they unravel quickly. And all of a sudden, what now are you left with? That half a time period, you know, I'm more and more convinced, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more when we do our, our Bible brunch together, but I'm more and more convinced that that half a time period is one where all of the agencies, everything that you count on for, for stability, disappears like that, and you have chaos, really chaos, uh, on earth. So chapter 18 begins, we're really talking about that, the fall of Babylon, and if you think about Babylon, uh, when this is being written, it's already fallen, right? I mean, Babylon does not exist as a culture uh, any, any longer. Uh, it, there's no strength there. Um, well, why would it say then the fall of Babylon? Well, if I'm hearing this for the first time, and I, I hear John talking about the fall of Babylon, I equate Babylon one for one with what nation? With Rome, Right? So in this time period, when this is being written, Rome is Babylon. And what I'm hearing John say is, okay, look, this Roman government that has set itself up, that seems so in control of the world, will fall quickly, like that. But Revelation is what? It is symbolic. And so the symbol points not only to Babylon or Rome, but past that, right? to nations and political agencies that the world will look at and say, there's no one that could come against that. This dynasty will go on forever. And the Bible goes, oh, no, 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 no. In the end of time, all of those agencies that, that Satan utilizes for his purposes will fall like that. And that's the picture, really, that we're getting. So we kind of went through the first three verses. We'll just look at them uh, pretty quickly. This angel is the one coming down, announcing the fall of this, this, this political agency. And um, he says, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. So he's speaking under the authority of God. 
and the earth was made bright with his glory. So you have the presence of God with this, this angel. He calls out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Okay? So as I'm hearing these words for the first time and I'm listening to the revelation, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this John is talking about uh, Rome coming down. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for unclean and detestable beasts. He's almost painting a word picture. And we talked about this last week of, of the, not only the fall, but the utter destruction of this political system. And the word picture that he paints is one that everybody is, has seen, right? Um, when you talk about de detestable beasts and, and unclean birds, the picture you get in your mind is the picture of, of what? Of, of birds pecking eyes out. And uh, last week we talked about Golgotha, right? And uh, the fact that the Romans figured out quickly how to deter crime is we'll, we'll crucify people um, and we'll hang them on, on crosses outside the dump. Just where you're going to find, what, bugs and birds and yucky stuff. So if I'm a Roman and I walk by a, a, that site, it's not uncommon for me to see the person alive, right? And they're hanging on this cross. And a bird is pecking at them. So that causes you, I mean, it tends to cause you to say, I wonder if I should, what did that guy do? I wonder if I should do that. No, Right. So that's the picture it's painting is of, of utter destruction that this has become just a, a, an empty haunt with unclean, undetestable birds, bugs, demons that are, are part of it. So there's not just a, a, a little setback. This is a collapse of this political regime. He then goes on verse 3 to say not only Rome, but guess what? Rome is, is a world power for a reason. Other nations have drunk the wine of the passion. And I, I always think about how our NEVs or NIVs translate this, the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And I always encourage you when you hear those words sexual immorality, do not just equate it with, with sex. No doubt, no doubt, ancient Rome was a sexually immoral place. No doubt about that, right? Um, if you ever studied history and you look at pictures of some of the, the, the Colosseums built. It would not be unusual for a, a column to be shaped like a phallus, right? And um, most of the temples, we recognize what those temples were. They are basically houses of prostitution. And uh, in Rome, people practiced prostitution as just a normal way of part of life. Um, Pedophilia was rampant in Rome. And uh, I always think about some of the, the stories that you'll hear of, of, of Christians during that period of Christianity. Uh, Paul, Paul Meyer, one of my favorite you know, authors and speakers, um, is a his, historical teacher at Eastern Michigan University. Wrote a book a number of years ago. It's old. You can find it on Amazon still, but it's called The Flames of Rome. And in the book, The Flames of Rome, he really gives you some clear pictures of how decadent Rome had become. So decadent that they would take Christians, roll them in tar, skewer them, light them on fire, 
so that the Christians would be their, their fire while they were under the tents having sex with young children. Okay. So the decadence of Rome sexually is, is without question uh, caught up in, the, in these words that Babylon has, has not only established itself as a, as a place that is so antithetical to God, but um, it just brings repulsion uh, to you when you think about it. Um, at the same time, the words sexual immorality go beyond just the physical act of sex, all right? So I always encourage you, every time you hear this phrase in the Revelation, the wine of the passion of her sexual, sexual immorality, the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. Remember what he's talking about is deeper than physical, it's spiritual, okay? So I like to sometimes just substitute the words. The kings of the earth have committed spiritual adultery with her. Okay. Um, sex in and of itself is a great thing. It's a gift of God, right? Um, it's, it's a part of what, what helps you and I recognize something beyond the physical, namely the spiritual. That our relationship with God is a relationship of absolute intimacy. That's what he desires. And so, so in marriage, it's a beautiful way to think about and talk about the intimacy that God wants to have with us in the marriage that is to come. Okay? This goes beyond just sex. This is talking about spiritual immorality. When the kings of the earth commit spiritual adultery with Rome, this means they're, they're coming into what? partnerships with Rome that produce a culture, produce a culture that lifts up the things of men, the stuff of men, to a place that is higher than God. We don't need God. We're our own gods. And we have created our own society. And we've created our own culture. The reason I'm spending a little bit of time on that is, uh, just read the next words. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Ancient Rome, when you looked at it, you would say, well, was it luxurious? If you and I, when you and I walk around, and you're going to find some homes that, no doubt, luxurious, right? Um, the average home, was it luxurious? Not really. The average person. Did they live in luxury? Mm, compared to the rest of the world, yes, but not so much because most people who lived in Rome, proper, third of the population were slaves, right? So what's it talking about? When I read these words, I cannot, I cannot escape but the, the, fa the fact that they speak to Rome, but they point past Rome to another Babylon. What does it mean to live in luxury today? Is there a nation on earth right, that has lifted up the stuff of man to a place higher than our very own country? Not. Um, there are countries that attempt to. Um, I don't want to go there, but if, if you want to jump on a plane and go to Dubai, right? Well, what have the Islamics done? created this city to say, 
our luxury is greater than your luxury, right? Sitting in front of the TV the other night and this ad comes on. And I mean, it twerks me off. So I'm like, okay. Jennifer Aniston's in this, this ad. And I'm like, what is she doing in an Islamic ad? I mean, selling out is what she's doing. So here's this, this airline where in, in the ad, she, you know, she's asking for accommodations on the airline because she wants to take a nap and watch TV and go to the bar and get a drink. And they're like, oh, we don't have any of that stuff. Well, then she ends up on the, the Arabs airplane. It has all that stuff. What's the message of that? What are, they, what are they really saying there? In plain, hard words, what are they saying to you Americans? We're luxury. You want to see luxury? Come to, you hop on our airplane. We'll take you to a place. We'll show you luxury. We're spiritual adultery. We've all gotten into bed with the culture and said this is more important than God is. And um, what happens is, to a degree, all of us get caught up in it. And I'll prove it to you with one word. And please do not get upset with me for this, because I'm not trying to condemn anyone here. Tithe. The Lord says, bring my tithe into my storehouse. Why can most Americans not tithe? Because they've already taken their tithe and brought it into a different storehouse. The storehouse of our culture. And it becomes so stuck in it that when the preacher gets up and says, you know what, here's what God calls us to be. The person's head kind of goes down. They're thinking, crap, I bought this thing and that thing and I got this thing and I got that thing. I, don't, I can't tithe. We all get wrapped up in it. Spiritual adultery, it sounds like, ah, uh, that's not me. But it's our culture that lifts up stuff above God and all of a sudden we get sucked into it and we're not living the way that God has called us to live. And this is what I want you to hear and this is what I really want to focus on this morning is this, this very next verse because I think it is so right for the day and age we live in. He says in verse number four, Then I heard another voice from saying, Ex alpha te. Ex alto, lest you take part in her sin and lest you share in her plagues. Okay? So I wrote the words up here, and they're, they're kind of interesting to me because they, they have a little bit of, of essence going on that you'll miss in the English. So when I read it in the English, the words, the words that I hear, this voice speaking, all right? The angel is pointed to, to Babylon, to what it is. It's going to collapse. This other voice from heaven now says, to me and to you, come out of her, right? Come out of her, my people. Leosmu, okay? So what's kind of interesting to me are the words, um, the, the Greek here is ex elfate. And it's, it's two words put together. The first one is, is more common. I mean, we, we hear it when we hear the word exodus, right? So I turn to the book of Exodus, or I turn on my TV and I watch Exodus, God and Kings, or whatever, right? So X, I know, means out of. So when I say this person is out of my marriage, they're my ex, <laughs> right? They're out of it. So the idea here is ex elfate, take the path out of her. Now what's interesting about that is it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a Jesus word. What does Jesus come along and say? I am the way. I'm the path out. All right. 
who, who do I want you to be in relationship with? With me. How do I want you to live? In a way that everything about your life now is, is what? It is outside of this culture that will suck you in. See what he says? Come out of her. Take the path out of her. Lest you get sucked into her sins. Now I could say it more starkly. Lest you yourself commit spiritual adultery. Come out of her. Okay? Interesting to me that when you, when you look in the New Testament, the, the word for church, um, you know, people are always saying, well, the church is, is I go, what church do you go to? You know, which, which church are you at? And, um, and I always stop and I'm, I think, well, hang on a minute. What are, you, what are you really saying when you say, what church do you go to? Okay? I mean, I understand the question, but what are you really saying? Here's why I ask. When I go into the New Testament, the word for church is an exaltate kind of word. Here's, here's how it breaks down. In, in the New Testament, the term for church is ecclesia. Ecclesia. Okay? So you can see that first word again, can't you? Out of. What about the second part of it? Ecclesia. Ecclesia means to be called. And so the way that the church is described throughout the New Testament is the church are those ones who are called out. Those ones who are called out of the world. There's never a place in the New Testament where you would call a, a church building a church. You, you wouldn't even call a congregation a church. You would call the body of Christ, the whole of it, the ones that have been called out. I have a lot of fun with that. I, last week, I, I met a, a gentleman, beautiful guy. He said to me, uh, he says, boy, I haven't been to church in a lot of years. And I said, no, I haven't either. And, uh, <laughs> and he kind of looked at me like, hmm, what? Well, the reason is because you really, in, in the New Testament, you can't go to church. You can't belong to church. You are the church or you're not the church. Are you one who's called out or you're not one who's called out? So when you get into the New Testament, and even throughout the Old Testament, what? This, this community of people gathered together have to support each other. Why? Because it is hard, really hard, to come out of the culture. Very difficult to come out of it. Okay? And I think probably one of the great failures of, of the body, what we call the church today, is um, we come together. I need to find people who, who can say to me, Luke, let's walk together in an effort to not live like this culture. Let's not get sucked into it. These things that God has called us to, let's take them seriously. Let's actually practice them in my life. I need that. You need that. We need that. But I think too often we don't have it. We have a gathering of people that come and say, let's sing a little bit. Here's it. Let's go. And it's not the church. The church is a body of people living together in such a way that we, we have to hold together because this culture is so powerful to suck us in. I always use these words. Um, you know, exaltate is kind of an, an in, not of, but for kind of a phrase. And... Um, I think about this, my marriage, my household, my being, should really portray these three things. Um, I recognize that we, we live in the world. You can't escape it. Part, part of humility, I believe, 
part of humility is being able to say, I live in a world and it's easy for me to get stuck in it. If I ever say to myself, oh, no, 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 I'm not stuck in the world at all. I'm in trouble. Humility recognizes I do get stuck in it. I'm in it. So what is the Spirit constantly seeking to do? Take me out, out from underneath it. Be in it, Luke. Just don't be of it. Don't, don't live the same way the rest of the world lives. Okay? It scares me to death when I pick up reports from, you know, from Dobson's group, and he says, well, let's take a look at the divorce rates amongst Christians and non-Christians, and, and he ends up saying, well, the Christians are out, out doing the non-Christians. I think to myself, for goodness sakes, we're in it and, and not, and we're of it. Get out of it. Come out from it is what these words are calling us to. Now, coming out from it does not mean that I abandon it, nor does it mean I just get up on my high horse and say, well, this culture is bad and it's evil and I won't have anything to do with it. No, because there's a third word that I think is critical. God put us here in this world, he puts your home where you live in your neighborhood for a reason because we are to be what? For the world. We're to be the leaven that changes it. Not the world changes us. We say, no, 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 no. I bring a word that changes the world. And, and I can tell you that the thing that marks St. Paul, in my mind, when you read through um, um, the, the epistles or the acts, the thing that marks him, is St. Paul is a guy who walks into one of the great Roman cities, Corinth, Athens. And he doesn't say, well, this place is going to hell. Well, he sees it. It's going to hell, all right. But what does he say? I brought some dynamite. I got the word of God. And guess what? I don't have a single weapon, an army, a budget. I have none of that. I have a house to stay in. I have no hotel reservations. I got no money in my pocket, but guess what I've got? I got some dynamite. And this city, Corinth, is that what you call it? Corinth? It's going to change. Because this word is going to come into it. And we're going to set people free from culture. That ought to be the spirit of the church today. The spirit that we have. My neighborhood today, should I should wake up in the morning. Great prayer to pray as a family. Lord God, make this neighborhood different. Use us to make this neighborhood different. We bring a word of hope that can change the houses that live around us. I believe that. I trust that in your name, Jesus Christ. Right? So I'm not in it. I'm, I'm in it. I'm not of it. But I am put here for it. Another way I like to say that is um, we constantly are talking about moving from something. You know, get away from that sin. Get away from that evil. Get away. I'm like, well, that, that's fine. But don't forget the second half of it. Move to, I can't just move away from, I've got to move to something else. What am I moving to? I'm moving towards practices in my life, practices in my household that do what? That allow me to come out from this culture, okay? And again, um, I mean, I'm just being pointed, but uh, when I sit down with the family and we talk about, okay, what's happening in your home? Um, the honest truth is, the majority of our families, I'm talking about in, in the, what we call the church, would say to me, well, our family is just stretched every direction. We try to pray. We try to get a, we try to get a devotion in every when we can, which is not very often. Um, 
Have we, have we read the Bible? Not really, because we, we come to church to, to hear someone tell us about it. And it scares me to death. I think, my goodness gracious, this is real stuff. This is coming. This half a time will be here. And, and what God is doing is he's saying to the church already at this time, get strong. Become that body that says, even in that worst of times, but well, we have a word of hope for you. And I think we're going the other way. I'm like, my goodness gracious, this is a time where I think God, more than ever, we need to, if we need to hear a word, it's this word, ex come out, find the pathway out of this world and become part of what it means to live in my kingdom. A couple of cross-references that I think are, are interesting here. Uh, the first one's in Old Testament, the second one in New Testament. Turn to Numbers chapter 16. And um, these are just fun word pictures I thought we'd, we'd play with for a minute. Number 16. And then we'll look at um, 2 Corinthians. Number 16, I, we're just going to read the first verse, then we're going to jump over to, to, to 20. First verse, I want you to kind of get the setting. Um, this is really kind of an interesting story. You, you'll remember it when we start reading it. Um, no doubt you've memorized all these names before. Chapter 16, verse 1. <laughs> the first name is one you might recognize because you'll see it in the Psalms quite often when David is, is talking to you know, who is going to, to write the music for this song. You may, hear, you may hear the term sons of Korah, sons of Korah. You'll see that in the Psalms. Well, here he's mentioned, verse 16.1. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. You can stop there because um, you now know who Korah is. His lineage goes to what? The lineage of the priesthood. And in fact, that's why he shows up in the Psalms. Who is, who is conducting life in the temple? The, the Levites, right? The Levites now, in this case, are going to rise up against Moses. Watch what happens. It says, Dathan, Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben took men. By the way, side note, probably down in your footnotes if you have a study Bible, um, we're all very thankful for Reuben, who created one of my favorite sandwiches of all times. And um, would it not have been for him, right? Well, here's the bad news. Verse number two, it says, They rose up before Moses with a number of people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation. Well, this didn't just happen overnight. You ever see this happen in a congregation? Have you heard that? Probably not in this congregation. That's how it happens, right? Someone goes, did you hear what they, they are doing? Oh, I heard they, they're going to do this. Did you know that they did this? And pretty soon, there's a group of people, and they rise up. 250 chiefs from among the people. That's a lot of has been going on. It says, um, verse 3, they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And they said to them, you have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why do you 
exalt yourselves above the assemblies of God. Well, what's really going on is that, here's what it sounded like. Who do Moses and Aaron think they are? We, we're the Levites, right? And we know as much, if not more than they. They're probably leading us in the wrong direction. We need to run. Somebody needs to take care of business today. Let's rise up against them. And verse 4 says, When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. He said to Korah and his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and he will bring him near to him, the one who he chooses. He will bring near to him. You know, Moses, this, this breaks his heart. It really does. Um, he falls down on his face just in pain because my people... My people are not really rising up against me. Who are they rising up against? Against God. And God will show it. Go down to verse number 20. The words I want you to hear. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, Ex alphete. Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. <laughs> I love the fact that Moses, it says in the very next verse, fell on his face, as did Aaron, and said, God, God of the spirit of all flesh, shall one man sin, and you'll be angry with the, the whole of the congregation? I like what uh, one author says, John, John Maxwell, he says, when you read through the Old Testament, you'll notice that there are two primary conditions in which Moses and God live. Condition number one is the condition in which God is saying to Moses, I'm going to kill all those people. And Moses is saying to God, God, spare the people. Condition number two is when Moses is saying to God, God, kill all the people. <laughs> and God is saying to Moses, Moses, there are my people, right? So that is Moses here. Lord God, this one man sins. Well, it's not one man. This is a spirit that's gone throughout the camp. And God knows it. And so he speaks in verse 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abram. Okay. I like that story because the language in it is picturesque. We can see it, right? We can see this rising up against God and God through Moses saying to the people, Get as far away from that as you possibly can. Okay. What are things in this culture? that God will look at you and me and say, get as far away from that as you possibly can. There's a lot. There's a lot that tries to suck us in. And God says, no, not, not, not get away from that. Come to me. Okay? Flip to the New Testament. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And this is one of my favorites. I really like the language here. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're in Corinth. And, um, man, I've read these words so many times before because I just think they're helpful for us today. What's going on is in Corinth, Corinth, of course, God has called out his body, Christianity. Um, but, again, because I've lived in this culture for all of my life, I, don't, I maybe don't even see how stuck in it I am. Does that make sense to you? And I think that's true for a lot of us. We've, we've grown up and, and lived so, so deeply and thickly into our American Western culture that we don't realize how stuck in it we, we are. Many times, 
You, you know when a lot of people will begin to realize it? Mission trip. Take a mission trip. And you know, you get ready to go, and it's, I'm going to go to this exotic place, and here, here we get all ready to go, and we, we, we go and we find ourselves in Peru on a hillside. And we realize, wait, wait a minute. What, what are those things on the hill? They're cardboard boxes. Well, why are there cardboard boxes on the hill? Well, they're homes. They're where these people live. Well, do they have bathrooms? No. No showers? Nope. Beds? Mm -mm. They live on a hill in a box? Yes. And sometimes when you get overseas and you, you find yourselves in places, you realize, oh my goodness gracious, how, how easy is it for me to become so stuck in culture, I really don't even begin to see how stuck I am. Well, that's Corinth. When Christians are growing up in Corinth, they've grown up in the culture. So Paul now is instructing the ones who are called out. I think these words are important. Verse 14, he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Okay, Man, those words are helpful. I mean, so, so helpful. It's an agricultural picture, right? Do not be unequally yoked. So if you, if you would picture a, a horse on one side of a yoke and a dog on the other side of the yoke, that's unevenly yoked, right? You're not going to plow your field very well. It's going to go like that because it's not even. It's not right. Okay, so what Paul is using is an agricultural term to say this. Don't put yourself into a position where you are in, in a partnership with one who is outside of the faith that partnership having the essence of having to pull towards that which God has called you to. It won't work. Okay? Where do these words apply? Um, they won't teach you this in Harvard. Uh, Oxford, they don't have this class. Um, Phoenix University Online, nope, not in that one either. But probably one of the most important, critical things our young people growing up have to learn, need to learn, please learn, please get this in you, is when, when you are seeking out God's will for you in marriage, to whom shall I be yoked? Please recognize that the most critical thing is not what she or he looks like, what she or he is going to do for a living, but is he or she a called out one or not? Period. Single most important thing. When I get into a marriage with somebody who I am not equally yoked with in faith, what am I doing? I'm coming against these words that Paul is trying to give to the Christian community and he's saying, please, I'm asking you, do not be unequally yoked. What's in the midst of that? Ex alphate. Come out of that. It will suck you in. As a pastor, I can tell you hundreds of stories okay, um, of folks who at the point that they're getting married, she or he says to me, I know he doesn't go to church, pastor, but I'm going to change him. Every single time I write that down and I say, guess what's going to happen? There's going to be a change, okay? Most likely, highest percentage in you. You'll be the one that changes. Culture will suck you in. 
These words apply to marriage? Absolutely. They apply to if, if, I, if I am called by God into a vocation. Do I want to yoke myself with a partner in a vocation that I am unequally yoked with? No. Why? Because it's easy in my vocation to lose sight of the fact that it's a vocation, not a job. They don't teach you that in Harvard either. You don't have a job as a Christian. You have a vocation. In your vocation, you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ and his people. You give yourself to that in a way that's very different from the way the world thinks. Okay? Ex alphete, come out of that. These words to me are pretty strong when he says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? None. We have no partnership. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now he's calling it what it is. He's saying people who are outside of the kingdom of God, guess what? They are owned by, guess who they belong to? Darkness. Now, am I for them? In the world, not of the world, for them. Yes, I am. Do I want to see that person come to know Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Prior to them knowing Jesus Christ, do not yoke yourself to them. Okay? So I think these are really good exaltate words for us in our, our, our world today because uh, what God is saying is as we come towards the end of time, our role as Christians is a highly significant role. There is, there's no one else on planet Earth who has hope. Just you. You're it. And so if you become part of the world and you lose your saltiness, no good to, but to be thrown out. Come out from this culture. Live under the ways of, of, of God. And I, I really am thankful for what you know, I, I see here at a, at a piece that um, I, I see people who really want to. I mean, I think families who are saying, we, we don't want to live like the world. But guess what? We recognize we do. We get sucked into it. So how can we come together more and more? Um, you know, I'm, I look forward to, and I think we need to, formation of, of, of more small groups where we can come together and live together and live this stuff out. Right, uh, places like um, when Pastor Mike is teaching, you know, marriage—that's significant stuff. Uh, next time Mike does that marriage matters class, I hope some—I'd love to see some of our young people that are thinking about marriage down the line get in it because it'll talk. This is what marriage is in the Bible, not in the world, in the Bible. Right, so um, that's what we're trying to do: is just let's be a body that says uh, we admit it. We repent of it. We get stuck in the world like everyone else. God, take us out of it so that we can live our lives in a way that significantly you, you enable us to make a difference in our, our neighborhoods, our homes, and uh, in this community. Okay? Come on back over to Revelation. When, when this voice is speaking to John, not only does he call called John out of this, this culture that's been created by the, the, the political beast. But he now tells John, here's what's going to happen to those agencies that have created this culture. He says in verse 5, For her sins are heaped as high as the heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Okay? So remember the saints that were under the altar? 
that were crying out, how long, O oh God? How long until you will avenge our blood? Um, when, when I think of my mom and dad in, in heaven, even though the, the church culture tells me I'm supposed to picture them playing golf and, you know, uh, watching football, I, I know that ain't right. Okay. Where I picture them is your heart is beating with God's heart. And so what you're asking is that question, how long before you will come back and end this, God? When will you bring this to an end? Now. That's what's happening here. God says, now. I have remembered her iniquities. It doesn't seem like it. To us living right now, when we look at the culture, we would, we would say, evil wins. Because like, evil just seems to win all the time. Is God just not paying attention? Oh, no, he's paying attention. And he says, I will remember her iniquities. And then, verse 6, pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. In Exodus, when God was laying out the, the law under which the Israelites lived, one of the stipulations of the law is if I stole something from you, if I stole your coffee cup, when I returned it, I must return two. Double, right? And so that imagery is used here to say of the beast, all that she has done to Christianity, to my people, she will be repaid now double. Okay, um, verse number seven. I want, I'm going to point a couple of things out here, and then we'll close. I think this is interesting. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her like measure of torment and mourning. Um, kind of an interesting word. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, the word for glorified herself is eduxasen. Uh, and so in the middle of it is this word that we probably recognize as our doxology. When we as, as Lutherans take our hymnals out and we sing the doxology, what does it sound like? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Right? Doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Doxa. That's the doxology. So when it says that the beast edoxoxen, what is it saying? It's saying the beast sets itself up as I'm the God from whom all blessings flow, right? So when I hear politicians saying, we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, I smile and I say, Edoxoxen, is that what you're saying to me? You have all the answers? No, I don't think so. Does the politic play an important role as created by God? Absolutely. Should I glorify it? No. Just recognize what it is. It plays an important role in our lives. It is not God. That's what we recognize. That's what it means to be called out of it. So as she glorified herself, in other words, made herself like God, lived in her luxury, so give her a measure of torment and mourning. She will now taste death. Now this is also interesting to me. Since in her... And now here's the word in her cardia. Okay, so tomorrow morning when Pastor Bolker goes into the cardiac care, right, where this word comes from. And uh, it simply translates heart. Significant to me, for she has said 
in her heart. Okay? What is God always looking for? Just our heart. So I'm after this relationship with you. Find the path out. It's a relationship with me. It's about your heart. Where is the heart of this beast? Mm, it's in creating for itself its own luxuries and saying, I have the answer. And in fact, notice the words of the beast. I am no widow. Mourning I shall never see. Sets itself up as God. And then in verse 8, um, the voice says, For this reason our plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burnt up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Now, remember, we, we just read a section where the plagues came one at a time, one at a time, one at a time, one at a time, incrementally, with a composite effect. Here, we're pointing to the final collapse of those political regimes, and how does it happen? Single day, quickly. Um, that's why I believe that the, the half a time, people are always asking me, do you think we're living in the last times? You don't have to think. You don't have to think. That's an easy answer. Yeah, of course we are. That's what the whole book of Revelation is about. Are we living in the last time? Different question. My answer, no. Why? Half a time has not begun. How do you know? This describes it. The fast, quick collapse of that which gives people stability. That's what we'll see. That starts the half a time. And... Um, so is it coming? Could come in our lifetime. Could. Could come in our kids' lifetime or our grandkids' lifetime. Um, I know people have been saying that for what? Centuries. So we don't know. But are there definite signs that we are living in, in the last times and that people are capable, people are capable of being used by the evil one to set off, hit the domino? a set of events that would begin to have a time. Absolutely, we're living in that time. All right, let's pray.